The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking to those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Now, This is going to be a different sermon. It's going to be a long introduction. Let me just tell you that, okay? Now, the Bible, if you know anything about the Bible, the Bible starts off with these shocking words. In the beginning, God. It does not tell us where he came from. It does not try to convince us that God is real. The Bible begins with the fact that God is distinct from everything else. He is the uncreated Creator. Now that shows us there are, right away, verse 1, there are two realities. One, God exists and nothing else does. Secondly, God creates everything. He speaks and it happens. So this shows us right away, Genesis 1-1, there's two circles, I'm going to say this today, two circles of existence. There's God by himself uncreated, creator, and then there's creation over here. I've heard this called two-isms, okay? Two-ism. There's two circles of kind of reality. The Bible teaches that all of life exists in two circles, God in one and the rest of creation in the other. God has absolute value and worth in himself. He is glorious all by himself because he is the uncreated creator. But when God creates, he, when he makes mankind in his own image, he, he creates creation and he gives it this kind of derivative value. It has value because it comes from him who, has, who is the source of all value. And creation only has value in relation to God. He is the source of all of creation's value and worth. The Bible doesn't start with, and God created you, and you're the most important thing in the universe. Now, there's many preachers that preach that, Oprah being the chief, right? You are the most important thing in all the world. That's not not how the Bible starts. It says, in the beginning, God and God created But what sin has done is sin seeks to take the two circles and converge them down into one circle. And what happened first, Lucifer was a created angel. He had a derivative beauty, a derivative value. He was made by God. He was beautiful. He was, you know, many people think he's a choir boy. But in his beauty, he wanted more. He wanted absolute beauty. But absolute beauty can only be found in this circle over here, in God, the creator. So what did Lucifer do? He created a cosmic rebellion. He wanted the two circles converged into one. So him and one-third of heaven's angels sought to overthrow God, 
And God crushed that rebellion and sent Lucifer to this earth to await his final judgment. What was his sin? Trying to converge the circles. Then we have Adam and Eve. They didn't like twoism either. They didn't really want God to have rights over them. They didn't want absolute truth, a standard of morality, a standard of existence that existed outside of them, that they didn't have any say on what was right. They didn't like that. And Lucifer came and tempted them in the garden. He says, you will be like God. Twoism becomes oneism. Two circles converge. You will be like God. Creation will be the same as the creator. Creation will be all-knowing like the creator. And this was the cosmic rebellion that brought chaos to our world. Anytime we seek to take two circles and create them into one, it's going to bring chaos and rebellion. The desire to take the reality of the two, two circles God exists by himself and creation and combine them and converge them into one circle. It's funny how we can say, oh, that's ancient, that's really old, that's maybe mythic language from the, from the first book of Genesis. But when we look around at our society, things aren't much different today. That's what we want to do. We want to take the two circles and blur the lines and converge them into one. We still don't like twoism. We still don't like the idea that there's a God out there that's uncreated, that sets the standards of reality, that writes the laws on human hearts, that says this is good and this is bad and you can't change that. We still push back on this idea of twoism. And it's funny, this kind of seeps into our culture. We don't even realize it. You see this in movies like Star Wars. What's the force? It's the life force that permeates everything. All one has to do is tap into what's already in you. See, the force is in you. You just have to tap into it. You don't need God. You just tap into the power that is already within you. This is the story that's recreated to get bestsellers today. Right? You just need to tap into the potential that's already inside you. You just need to reach the force, right? You just, whatever that is, right? Oh, it's Oprah Theology 101. Just tap into the power that's already in you. One circle. God's not outside and above you. He's in you, and you just tap into this power. We see this in movies like The Lion King. The circle of life. Everything that exists, exists in that circle. There's nothing that stands outside the circle. God, animals, trees, they're all one and the same. So oneism, or as it's actually called, but nobody wants to know this really most of the time, it's called pantheism or panentheism. Seeing God and creation as basically existing together in one circle. It flattens everything down. It flattens all of life down. It's what science, many, many not, not science in itself, but materialists want to do that say the only thing that we can know are things that you can touch and see and define. That there's nothing outside of reality or there's nothing outside of creation. It could all be explained by science. And what inevitably happens is that creation and created things try to push God out of his circle. 
I want, to, I want you to see how subtle this can be. Everything God created was good. He said so in Genesis 1. It is good. It is good. It is good. But what happens when good things, good things in this circle, begin to crowd this circle? When good things become God things? What happens when good things try to crowd their circle and become ultimate things? Where I say now, whatever this create, what's in this circle, creation becomes the most important thing in my life. I don't really need God. Creation gives me everything I need. Well, the Bible calls that idolatry. When created things try to become ultimate things. And this is important for us to understand because when we hear the word idolatry, most people, when they hear the word idolatry, they might think of this pagan idea of a little statue where people would be worshiping statues and how weird that is. Or maybe when they think of idolatry, they think bad things. Idolatry is bad things. But when we're talking about idolatry, we're not, don't assume that we're talking about bad things. We're not necessarily talking about bad things. We could be talking about phenomenal things, great things, glorious things that have been created, but they're pushing out the creator for his glory, for the top spot in our heart and our affections, let's say. They're good things that become God things that make them bad things for us. Now, this is where we're going today. Take the family. God created the family. Man, woman, marriage, sex, children. God created this as the foundation for all of society. God brought at God created Adam. God made Eve. God brought her brought them together in the first marriage ceremony, walked them down the aisle, gave them to each other, gave them sex. And he said, this is good. It's the foundation for all society. And every successful society in history has been built on this foundation of the family. The family is good. In family, we find much of our identities. We learn obedience. We learn to trust our parents and submit to their leadership. We learn friendship with siblings and how to work out disagreements, a lot of them. Right, I have three girls in my house right now under the age of five. Right, There are a lot of disagreements, usually over dresses and Barbie dolls and who looks the prettiest. Okay, The family is meant to be, it was built by God, to be the school where we learn how to live and love as humans. It's meant to teach us something about God. It teaches something about us and what does it mean to be human. And we are currently living in a time where the family is trying to be redefined. Creation is trying to converge the circles. They're trying to do everything they can to redefine something that God has already defined as the creator. This will not go well for us as a society. But a common reaction to this push in our culture to redefine the family, a common reaction is kind of to jump off or fall off the horse on the other side and to make the family ultimate. 
the family, me and mine, becomes the most important thing in life to me. The culture is trying to destroy it, so I'm going to build walls around it, and now ultimately I'm going to kind of worship my family. And we've had ministries that really have risen to the top of our society or in our kind of Christian subculture, focus on the family, things like that. But it's all about the family. The focus is on the family. But the family is not and never was meant to be ultimate. The family is still in the created circle. God said that it was good, but when God finds Abraham, in the chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, God says to Abraham, leave your people, leave your family, come out from among them, and follow me to the land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make you, in effect, a new family, and I'm going to bless you, and you're going to bless the world, and I want you to be a new family, my surrogate family. I want you to be a, a new family that will show the world what life with God looks like. So Abraham leaves his father and mother and goes to this land where God shows him and begins to start his new family with God. In Abraham, God is, was going to create a new family that would even take precedent over his immediate family. We see this truth play out poignantly, right, on the mountain. We remember this? Where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, his one and only son, Isaac. Abraham complies, but he's up there, and the altar's built, and Isaac's on it, and he's strapped down, and he's got the knife above his head, and he's about to plunge the knife into his son, and God kind of relents, God steps in, God sends a ram and tells Abraham to stop, don't kill your son. God says, stop, I know now, now I know that you're willing to sacrifice your son, that your family doesn't take precedent over the family of God. I can see your commitment to keep the family of God above your family. Don't kill Isaac, kill a lamb instead. Abraham, see, he knew life was made up of two circles. There's God and there's everything else. And if God is who he is, says he is, if God is the uncreated creator, then he could ask anything from us and how could we deny it? He gave us the son. If he wants him back, then he'll, he gets him back. God was the most important. He had the most value. He was supreme. And creation, even his own son, was outside of the circle over here. Isaac had value. He was made in the image of God with dignity, value, and worth, but it was a derivative value. Wasn't compare, you couldn't, can't compare it to God. Now, this is where we're, we're going to, I'm trying to give us a little biblical theology and a little trajectory here through the scriptures because we see this, this kind of poignantly play out in a kind of really scary scene in the book of Exodus. And I want to talk about it a little bit. It's in Exodus 32, 21 through 29. And if you want to go there, we can go there and read it. I'm just going to read it to you. This is going to be a little Bible study this morning uh, to get us here. And what, what's happened, if you remember... Um, Joseph, at the end of Genesis, Joseph gets carried off 
to Egypt, right? And he gets elevated in Egypt and, and all God's people kind of get brought into Egypt. Well, what happens is they start making babies and they start multiplying. And eventually Egypt begins to see them as a threat. And Egypt begins to subjugate them and put them into slavery. And then they're in slavery, Egyptian bondage and slavery, for 400 years. And if you've seen the Prince of Egypt or you've seen, I, don't, I haven't seen Exodus, Gods and Kings. I haven't seen any of that yet. But what happens is God raises up a deliverer for the people of Israel. And that deliverer is Moses. And Moses, through signs and wonders and miracles that God performs on his people's behalf, he brings them out of slavery. Now, just think about it. Every one of these people were born and raised as slaves. Every one of these people knew nothing but slavery. Now, they might have had some history. They, they had some lessons. They, they, they learned some things about um, God's dealings with his people before that. But up until this moment, they know nothing but slavery. And God brings these people out. He delivers them by his mighty right hand. God does all of this stuff. But these people, they are slaves on the inside. So they're constantly wanting to go back to Egypt, right? God doesn't, you know, they get a little thirsty in the desert. They shake their fist at God and they blame him. Um, they get tired of this. God is raining down this stuff called manna from heaven, like this breadcrumb stuff, right? Wonder bread from heaven. And they get tired of it and they, they start complaining. You remember those meat pots back in Egypt? The meat pots, all those meat, you were slaves, Right? You were under subjugation. You were in bondage. You were beaten. And now when you're out of slavery, all you can think about is the meat pots back in Egypt. Right? This is the, never mind. I won't go there. Never mind. I was about to say, no, no, no. Okay. Anyways, so these people are divided in their heart about God. They've seen him do amazing things, but Moses is kind of the one that deals with God most of the time. And what happens? Moses goes on top of the mountain. He gets the Ten Commandments, right? And he's up there for a long time. And the people kind of, okay, maybe he died up there. I don't know what's going on with this Moses guy, but hey, he's out of the picture. So what if they, they go to Moses' second in command. They go to Aaron, and they say this, make us something we can worship. We can't see this God. We saw Moses, but he's gone up there somewhere. We want something we can see and touch and feel and taste. Give us something to worship. Now, this is, that's where we find ourselves. Verse, well, Moses comes down and finds him. Here we go. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods. It's idolatry. Make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron says, so I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf, right? This is, sounds like my kids right here. This is what happened, right? How'd the banana end up on the wall? I, have no, I was opening it and it just blew up, right? I highly doubt that happened, right? I know there was this involved in that, right? That's what Aaron says. He says that people want something of creation, something around them, something in this circle. They want to worship something they can see. So he says, take off your gold, 
and they throw it in the fire, and they melt it down, and they create this cat, this, this animal, right, to worship. Now, l- listen to this. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, they lost restraint, for Aaron had let them break loose to, their, to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp, and he said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Okay, now this is, a, this is, Moses is, Moses is a bad dude, okay? He comes down, he sees this idolatry, creation, trying to converge the two circles, worship something of, that's been created, and he says, whoever's on God's side, come to me. One sense, God's family, come here. Okay? The Levites, some of the people, they, they come over to his side. Listen, the sons of Levi gathered around him. And listen what Moses said to them. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. So this is what God's telling him to do. Put your sword on your side, each of you. So secure yourself for battle. Put your sword on. And go to and from, to and fro, from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. That's some serious stuff. Whoever's not with us, kill them. What's he do? And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Now, I want you to hear this. Who's, who are they killing? They're killing their brothers. They're killing their sons. They're killing their family members. Look what it says in the next verse. And Moses said, today you have been ordained. That's quite the ordination service. Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that God might bestow a blessing upon you this day. That is a shocking scene. Creation has risen up against the creator and God says, I take this so seriously, I take this idolatry so seriously that I want you to destroy those who are committing it. Your own sons and brothers. This might sound absolutely appalling to you. And this act actually confirmed upon them an identity as worshipers and as priests. Listen, this is how serious God takes the converging of these two circles. Now you might say, that's why I don't like religion. That's violent. That sounds just like, you know, radical Islam, that God would demand that kind of action. But what this scene is pointing us to, and I'm going like to let the cat out of the bag really soon because this is such a crazy scene. What this scene is pointing us to is creation rising up against creator is cosmic treason. 
is cosmic rebellion. And in the end, it will lead to eternal damnation and eternal separation. And it's so serious that he wants to cut it off and he wants to destroy it in the moment. But let us not forget that this is the God who takes it not just so serious that he commands these people to to execute their family members. He takes it so serious, and listen to this, that God himself would send his own son to the earth to live a perfect life that never worked, that enjoyed creation and all creation had to offer, but never subjugated creator to creation. He always worshiped God as ultimate. That was Jesus. And what did God do to Jesus? God crucified him. God killed him. So we would never have to do this scene here in in the book of Exodus. We would never have to kill one of our sons or one of our daughters because God the Father killed his son for us. But that's how serious God takes the two circles coming into one, the idolatry that we do. So as we jump into our text this morning, and I want you to see this. God's family and the calling of Abraham, you can see it all over the Old Testament. God's family takes precedent over human, natural family. We see it here. We saw it, we, we, you can see it all the way through the Old Testament. So what Jesus does in a moment, it's shocking. It's meant to be shocking, but it's in line with God, what God had been doing throughout the Old Testament. So I want you to open up your Bibles now. To, to uh, Mark chapter three or chapter three, we've been working verse by verse through the book of Mark. We've been shocked by Jesus. Jesus has been, he will not stay in any mold that we want to put him in, any box that we want to put him in, he's breaking out of. He's been offensive to us, all of us. If you meet the real Jesus, you get offended. And he does not stop short today. Let's read our scripture. Verse 31. Jesus, his mother and brothers came. Now stop right there. The Catholic Church teaches that uh, Mary was perpetually a virgin, okay? Scripture does not teach that. Uh, scripture teaches that he had half-brothers, that Joseph and Mary continued to have sexual relations and had children, and he had brothers. And this moment now, Jesus, or Jesus' mom, Mary, and his half-brothers show up. Now, why, where's dad? Most, many scholars, most scholars, I would say, believe that Joseph has died. Joseph is dead. And so Jesus lost his earthly father at a young age. But there's also this um, maybe symbolism or this meaning behind Mark that he doesn't mention, you know, mention father because God himself is Jesus' father. And he doesn't want to confuse that at all. So let's keep reading. His mother and his brothers came. And standing outside... They sent to him and called him. So if we remember what's going on, Jesus has been teaching and crowds are coming around him. He's teaching uh, and people are just kind of blown away by the teaching. He's doing miracles. He's healing people. And he's got a huge crowd. And what we saw last week was his mother and his brothers didn't believe in him quite yet. They didn't understand fully what he was trying to do. And they were trying to arrest him. They were trying to grab him. They were like, they said literally, Jesus is out of his mind. And they're trying to get a hold of him. And now it's the same scene. Jesus is inside. He's teaching um, his apostles and the, the, those that are around him. And his mom shows up. Mom and brother show up. And we don't know exactly what they want. It might be time for dinner. We don't know. He, he, they're, they're saying, we want you, Jesus. Come on. Now let, listen. They, they called to him. 
and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Okay, so Jesus is teaching, and they call a timeout. Oh, Jesus, your mom and your brother are here, right? Mom, mom showed up, okay? Mom's here. Stop what you're doing. Push pause. Go on out. What does Jesus say? And Jesus answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Hmm, okay. And looking about at those who sat around him, so this is a, I want you to see this deliberate scene playing out by Jesus. Your mom and your, your brothers are here to look for you. And he looks around at them and he says, who are my mothers and my brothers? He looks around the crowd and he says, you are my, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, this is, was far more controversial in Jesus' day than it is in our day. Now, if you are, if you are kind of like super conservative, uh, homeschool type of thing, and we love homeschooling, but it might be pretty shocking to you. But most people in our society, this isn't that shocking anymore because we are in a more of an individualistic culture than we are in a communal, family-driven culture. So Jesus here is kind of reordering the family, and it's shocking now, as we study this text, from this book here, When the Church Was a Family, he does some great work um, to help us understand the first century kind of definition of the family. What does the family look like in Jesus' day? And here's three things we need to know about the world in Jesus' day. Number one, in the New Testament world, the group took priority over the individual. Okay? You made decisions based upon your family, not your own. You know what? This is good for me. I'm going to leave and go to the school, go to this college, go do what I want to do. This is what I want to do. That's not how you made decisions in the New Testament. What is good for the family? How do I love and serve my parents and my siblings? What's the best decision for the family? The group took precedent over the individual. Not so in our day and age, right? We do what we want to do. 18, it's my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. Hope mom and dad got good insurance and they got a good retirement plan. I'll come visit them in the nursing home, but I'm out of here. I'm going to a coast, right? That's individual takes precedent over the community. In the New Testament world, the family took precedent. And second, in the New Testament world, a person's most important group was his family. That there was other segments of society, but the family was primary, okay? And lastly, in the New Testament world, the closest family bond was actually between siblings, the closest family bond was between siblings, okay? And it's all, I don't have time to build it all out, but it's all in the book if you want to read it. And what does Jesus do? Jesus shows up and he radically flips this. And he challenged his followers to join a totally new family of siblings that would now take priority over their natural families. That Jesus here is kind of, making it very clear, and he's establishing what's already been in the Old Testament, but he's making it really clear there's a family of God now that takes precedent over one's personal family. Jesus creates a new family. This new family is more important over a person's natural family. Now, let's put the quote on the screen. There's uh, a, new, a, 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 
uh, New Testament scholar, one of the best in the world, N.T. Wright, commenting on this verse. This is what he says. The only explanation for Jesus' astonishing command is that he envisaged loyalty to himself and his kingdom movement as creating an alternate family. Okay? So now there's this new family on the scene that's going to look a little bit like how their natural family works and plays out, but it's now a new family with a new father and new siblings. Jesus says this. Now, what is this talking about? Now, I'm going to have to push back on some of our understanding in our c- current culture, okay? In the Bible, when someone is saved, when someone comes to faith, salvation is a community-creating event, what? What does that mean? When you're saved, you're not saved just into this little individual thing where you just relate to God now. You and God. And it's explained that way a lot. Personal relationship with God. How is you and your quiet time? And it's all about you and God. The Bible doesn't speak like that very often. The Bible speaks of salvation being a community creating event. When you're saved, you're saved into a family. Cyprian said, a long time ago, I think it was like two, in the year 256, you cannot have God as your father unless you have the church as your mother. That when you're saved, you're brought into a family, and now you, have, you need to learn how to live inside that family and relate to new brothers and sisters and a new heavenly father. Now, I, I really, I can't even describe how upside down this is to the current reality that we have in our society. And oftentimes, even in a church, you'll hear this. Here's the priority. Fil- the, our, the priority of our lives filtered through um, this kind of individualistic understanding of ourself, that we're just autonomous, we, we get to make our own decisions. You hear this a lot in, in churches. Your priorities should look something like this. God, number one. Second, family. Third, church family. Fourth, other people, neighbors and everybody else. This is an individualistic way of understanding the church. What's most important is you and God. That's what's most important. And then what's second important is you and your family, your natural family. And what's of third importance is you and your church family. So anytime church family might get in the way of you and your natural family, the church family gets booted. We choose our natural family over our church family every time because of not the biblical way of viewing reality in the church, but because of our culture's influence on us that teaches us that we're individuals first. If Johnny has a baseball game on Sunday, we skip church. If missional community goes too long, Sally's not going to get enough sleep and she's going to be a little crabby in the morning, we leave early or we don't go to missional community. We come to a church, we gather with God's people, but as soon as somebody gets on my nerves, as soon as I disagree with someone or someone's theology doesn't line up exactly what I think it should line up with, we take our ball and we go home and we find another church out there that's going to meet our needs in the ways that we think they need to be met. Teaching our kids this whole time that our preferences take precedent over the family of God. That even the needs of my little 
community at home takes precedent over the communitas of the church. But Jesus says, Jesus blows that paradigm up right here. And he does it. This isn't the only place he does it. He, he's gonna sp- it's all through the Gospels. Jesus says, your loyalty should look like this. Number one, God and his family, God's family. We're not saved on an island where it's just me and God and my personal relationship with him. We're saved into the church, into the family of God. So the God's family takes precedent over, secondly, my natural family. And third, we have others, outsiders, neighbors, et cetera, et cetera. Now, my illustrations are kind of silly, right? Baseball games and bedtimes. But what happens when things get really serious? Let's push this down. If, if it goes God and then my family, right, and then God's family, let's push this down a little further. What happens, let's say, if somebody in your missional community or somebody in your church gets sick? What happens if they get Ebola? Woo, thank God for the priesthood of all believers. I'm staying home. I'm watching it. I'm watching something on the internet. I'm going to listen to one of Justin's old podcasts for the next six months or a year. Now listen, I think all of us probably naturally we go, yeah, I'm not getting Ebola. I'm going to die. I don't want my kids to die. But what's interesting, see, when the church first started, and it's this little group of people, and they, 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 Jesus said, this is my new family here. And they're living out this family identity throughout the Gospels. And then you see in the book of Acts, and then you see it multiplied, and then you see all these families spreading across the world, right? They had this family identity. What's interesting is what some of the things that created this explosion that made, that made Christianity take over the world was this... I, idea and concept and reality that the faith family, God's family, takes precedent over our natural family. Listen to this. This illustration isn't just hypothetical. Around AD 260, a devastating plague afflicted the great city of Alexandria. People were dying right and left, and the church family suffered some devastating losses. The response of the local church to the plague constitutes one of the most powerful examples of Christian brotherhood in all the annals of church history. Here's a section of a letter written by Denis... Oh, man, I cannot say it. Denisius, the overseer of the Christian community in the city of Alexandria. Listen to this. That's what he's writing. He's writing this letter. The most, at all events, of our brethren and their exceeding love and affection for the brotherhood were unsparing of themselves and clave to one another, visiting the sick without a thought as to the danger, assiduously ministering to them, tending them in Christ, and so most gladly departed this life along with them, being infected with the disease from others, drawing upon themselves the sickness from their neighbors and willingly taking over their pains. In this manner, the best at any rate of our brethren departed this life. Certain elders and deacons and some of the laity too. The bodies of the saints 
they would take up in their open hands to their bosom, closing their eyes and shutting their mouths, carrying them on their shoulders, laying them out. They would cling to them, embrace them, bathe and adorn them with their burial clothes, and after a little while, receive the same services themselves. For those that were left behind were ever following those that went before. Listen to this. But the conduct of the heathen, unbelievers, was the exact opposite. Even those who were in the first stages of the disease, they thrust away. They fled from their dearest. They would even cast them in the roads half dead and treat the unburied corpses as vile refuse. The plague hits. People are contracting the disease and Christians aren't hiding out into their homes protecting themselves and protecting their families. That's what unbelievers were doing. Their baby got sick, they would throw the baby out in the street. Get rid of it. Save yourself. Christians were pursuing the sick. They were bathing the sick. They were cleansing the sick. They were embracing the sick. They were burying the dead and then they were getting sick themselves and dying. See, this is the precedent of the family of God, the eternal family of God over and above my natural family. 1 John 3.16 says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for our church family, for our missional community family. And I'm just going to say, you can't do that by showing up on Sunday morning. You can't do that by sneaking in the back door and sitting down and hearing a gospel sermon and getting a little feel good and then walking out and being being the same way that you came in. This means committing to a church, being a member of a church, saying these are my brothers and these are my sisters and God will hold me accountable to the things he's called me to do, like lay down my life for my brothers and for my sisters. This is discipleship. Now, Jesus says, he looks around the crowd, his family, this is shocking, right? Mom's at the door, knock, knock, knock. Brothers are at the door. He says, who are my mothers and my brothers? These are my mothers and brothers, whoever does the will of God. So how do you get into the family of God? How do you get brought into this new family that's meant to take precedent over our natural families? Jesus says, whoever does the will of God. Now, this, at the same time, is an amazing comfort for us, but it's also going to be kind of a stinging rebuke, okay? Kind of a sobering rebuke. First, it's an amazing comfort. How do you get into the family of God? Do you work your way up into it? Does, do you come to Jesus, and Jesus looks at you and goes, that guy's uber-talented, Get him. Get him on our team. Have you seen that guy with the spreadsheet? We need him on our team. This Judas cat, he can't keep track of finances, right? We need that guy. Does he say that? No. This guy's a preacher. Oh, I need him. Come on. Does he see your morality? Look how this guy leads his family. Look how he lays his life down for his wife. Look how this guy abstains from all the sinful stuff. Oh, get that guy. Absolutely not. John 1 says this in 12, verses 12, 13. But to all who did receive him, 
does that mean? Who believed in Jesus' name, he gives the right to become children of God. And they're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what does it mean? Those who do the will of God, those who believe in Jesus' name, those who take him into their self and trust him, that they're born again. It's called regeneration, that the heart of stone is removed and a new heart of flesh through the Holy Spirit is given to you and you've got faith now that you can trust Christ. Those are the ones who are the new family of God. But listen, the promise of the gospel isn't just heaven when you die. The, that is so boring. That, it's been min- the gospel has been, oh wait, heaven is not boring. Let me say that. But to shrink the gospel down, to believe in Jesus so you can go to heaven when you die, is not what Jesus taught. That's a piece of what Jesus taught. God could have saved us without adoption but he didn't. He went even farther to show us how much he loved us. What do I mean by that? In regeneration, God gives us a new spiritual life within. That's what he does. In justification, God declares us not guilty under God's law. We're not guilty. Right there. Boom. You can go to heaven. We're not guilty anymore. We've been given a new heart. We're fit for heaven. We're not guilty. But God doesn't stop there. God adopts us in Christ. D.A. Carson says, this is the greatest privilege of the Christian. You're adopted by God into a new family. Actually, that's J.A. Pack, J.A. Packer that said that, not D.A. Carson. This is an eternal blessing. In adoption, we receive a whole new alternate family with God as our Father and a whole family full of people who desire to do the will of God, who want to trust Christ with their whole life. This is an eternal blessing that's meant to make us say, like John, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Listen to this. This is what the psalmist says. Psalm 2710. For my father and my mother have forsaken me but the Lord will take me in. See, many of us have been deeply wounded and scarred from our families, from our family of origin. All of us have been shaped profoundly, right, in ways that we just get mad at, right? You you, you find yourself, wait till you have kids. You find yourself saying a certain thing or responding a certain way, and you're like, that's my mom. Doggone it. That's my dad, right? It just comes out of us. We've been shaped by our family of origin. But God says, see, you were formed, and some of us, most of us, misformed, misshapen in community, misshapen in family. So now it's not just going to take this, you know, eternal edict from God that's going to drop you down all of a sudden, just all by your lonesome, you get changed into this new person that lives out God's ethos in the world. No, no, now You need to be shaped, informed, reshaped, reformed inside of a community, inside of a family. You were hurt by family. You need to be healed in a family. You were misused in a family. You need to be loved and learn what love looks like in a gospel-centered family. 
Where our fathers have failed, God, our Heavenly Father, has never failed. Where our family of origin runs out of grace real quick, our family of faith, our community that's centered on the gospel gives grace upon grace upon grace. Community is not optional for the Christian. If you see it in our society as, well, I go to church, so, I, so I'm a Christian. Well, the word Christian is used three times in the New Testament. The word disciple is used over 200. I go to church on Sunday, so I'm a Christian. But that discipleship stuff, that's for somebody else. Those groups, those missional communities, that's for those really elite Christians, like special operations Christians, right? Those Navy SEAL Christians, they get real serious about things. No, it's meant for all of us. We're part of a family. We're meant to live this identity out as family in a family. Now, secondly, Jesus. So first off, how do you get in the family? Amazing grace of God. You believe in Jesus, you get adopted into this family. It's phenomenal. Trust Christ, you get a new family. Secondly, Jesus' reprioritization of family is also a sobering rebuke. What does this show us? Family is in this circle over here. Family is a good gift of God. It's a great gift of God, but it's created. It's in this circle over here. The mission of of Jesus is to take precedent over our families. Why? Because God is ultimate. He's in a circle all by himself. Our families need us to love them second. They need to know that we love them, yes, absolutely, but we love God and his family all the more. Now, I'm not saying love your family less. I'm saying love God and his family more. The answer is never love that less. The answer is always love God more. We want our family, we want our children to be happy, yes, but ultimate, what are we teaching our kids? Ultimate happiness isn't found over here. Ultimate happiness is found here. In God, through Christ, by faith. Ultimate happiness is not found outside the will of God. And sometimes, family, the will of God is for us to be tired. Sometimes the will of God is for us to suffer. Sometimes the will of God is for us to be persecuted. Sometimes the will of God is for us to be absolutely spent. Comes bedtime as we pour our life out on mission to our neighbors and to our city. Now, I cannot tell you how many parents have pushed the circle of their children's sporting activities and dance recitals and all this. They've pushed it into the circle of God only to regret it later in life. I was a youth pastor before. I was a pastor here. I was a youth pastor for seven years. And parent after parent, my kid can't go to camp. He can't do camp because he's got football camp or sporting camp or this camp. And 
the coaches say he's going to get a scholarship, and this is a big deal to us because we can't afford his education. So my, the, the entire success of my child rides on this sport. So he's going to have to put the sport over the family of God. Missing church. It's just, it's, listen, we talk about God at home. It's a Christian home. We watch Christian movies, right? He's, it's not going to kill him to miss camp or to miss church or to miss Bible study or miss, it's not going to kill him. Not a big deal. I can't tell you how many people have pushed back on that. And I can't tell you how many people of those kids that I've watched do that, how many of them have wandered from the faith, how many of them have gotten to college and left the faith, or have gotten to college, and most of them, I don't know any of them that went on to professional sports, right, that they were all promised. But many of them have wandered and have wondered about the family of God. And many of them are right now at home, at the most, watching something on TV to stir them up inside. They're not involved in the family of God, in a life-shaping community of grace centered on Jesus. Now, first off, Mark is stark. Mark doesn't do what I'm about to do. Mark kind of, he says this and drops the mic and just lets it deal, lets it just linger there, okay? That's what Mark does. He, he just says, the family of God should take precedent over your family, boom, deal with it. But I'm going to give you a little last second qualification. This is a tension that we're meant to walk in, the tension between our family, and the family of God. Mark doesn't ease the tension for us at all, but Jesus does in some other places. Jesus does not, this is not what I'm saying, Jesus does not condone the abandoning of one's family for ministry, okay? It's not what he's condoning. Jesus seems to treat his family harshly here in this moment, but while on the cross, with some of his last breath, he's making arrangement for his mother to be taken care of. He says to John, John, behold your mother. To Mary, Mary, behold your son. And he's taking care of his mom while he's dying. He's not just abandoning his mom and saying, hey, I'm about the kingdom. Deal with it yourself. This is about God's family, right? Paul says to Timothy, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. We're meant to love our wives. We're meant to shepherd our children. We're meant to disciple those within our household. That's not what I'm saying. There is a tension here. And we need to learn to walk in it. Family is good, but the family of God is eternal. The family of God is the family that Christ bled for. The, families of God, the family of God is the family that the blood of Christ atoned for. This is the family that will go on into eternity, and this is the family that we all want members of our family to be adopted into, right? We want to teach our children, the Dean family is not that cool, okay? God's family is better. I want you not just to be a dean, I want you to be Christ's dean, right? I want you to be, have not just me as your father, 
but God as your father. So then in heaven, we get the full realization of what the family looks like. We're meant to be raising our kids up into this. The family of God takes precedent over our natural family. Now, some of the little ways that we do this. My kids, they, they say, where are we going? Are we going to missional community tonight? Yeah, we're going, oh, my missional community family. That's how, that's just language that we've worked into them. That this is our missional community family, right? They're, they're learning church isn't a place. Church isn't a building that you go to. Church is a people that you belong to. It's a family that Christ has purchased with his own blood. Now, let me ask you this. Many of us, they say our culture is like the air we breathe. It's like the water a fish swims in. A fish might not know if this is good water or bad water. It might not, you know, murky what's in it. Fish doesn't really care. It's just what it's, what it's, it's what, how it exists. Many of us, I think, in our culture, we've been formed as individuals. And that's not all bad. Right? I'm not saying it's all bad. But how are you relating to the family of God? Think about that. How often do you see the family of God? How often do you see members of your missional community? How often do you see members of your church? Once a week? Sunday? Wednesday night? If we said, let's let Jesus define what the family looks like, and we go back to Jesus in the Gospels, how often is he with his family? Every day. Nearly every day he's living and walking and eating with them and teaching and working. If we're going to live like a gospel-centered family and show the world what God is like, we need to live like a family. We say at Sacred City a lot, the only way to make disciples the way Jesus made disciples, okay, is by being in community and on mission. It's the only way to do it. Jesus did not set up a Sunday morning gathering to make his disciples. All right, I need to make disciples that are going to take, over, take the gospel to the world. Let's start a service. Who, who can sing? We need a band. It's not what Jesus did. He says, follow me. Follow me, live with me, live in my ways, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. That's still the call of discipleship for us. Follow Jesus, live in community, live on mission. The Sunday gathering is a piece of that. It's a very vital, important part of that where we partake of the sacraments, we hear the preaching of the word. Sunday is absolutely vital, but it's not all of it. Are you living in community? Are you living on mission? Do you, are you experiencing this family dynamic within the family of God? And I'm going to ask you, if you're not, I, I can't convince you that God is gracious from the stage. So the Spirit can do some stuff. The Spirit can do that. But when you really get it is when you're in a community with people and you screw it up and you sin, you hurt someone, and they give you grace because God has given them grace. That proves it to you. It puts on flesh in front of you and says, whoa, this is a different type of community. This can be grace-centered and gospel-centered. This is something different. Or when you see people loving someone they shouldn't love, 
someone that they should judge or they should push away from. They pursue them and love them. It teaches you something about the gospel. You'll never understand the gospel in all its fullness outside of community. You won't. Do you need to reorganize your life? Do you need to go home and talk to the wife or talk to the spouse and say, we need to reorganize our life to look like Christ? We need to be in a community. We need to be in a missional family. I can't believe the pressure on parents. And we've got a lot of young families in this church, and this is one of the reasons I'm hitting it this so hard. The pressure to make your kid awesome at every sport all year long. My kid's in wrestling. Wrestling season ends. He gets, I start getting emails about this year-long wrestling camp that he could be a part of on Tuesday night and Thursday night. Oh, yeah, that, that's good. I want my kid to be good and really enjoy. All right, I'm going to sign him up for that. And then I got gymnastics coaches. And I need to be in jail. And then we got soccer and we got baseball. And I don't even want to think about what I'm going to have to do for my girls. Lots of tutus and stuff. All the dance and all the, the pressure. You're not a good parent unless you do this. That's the pressure. And moms, frazzled, never see her without a Starbucks in her hand because she's just running from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. She can't, caffeine, IV, drip, that's the only way she can function. What if the family of God took precedent over our family? Maybe we would be training and raising and equipping Christians and not just consumers. See, this morning, as we come to the table, this isn't a table for individuals. This is a table for the family of God. This is a table that reminds us God is our Father, these are our brothers and sisters, and that's only possible because our elder brother, Jesus Christ, climbed up on the cross and gave his last breath. Think about that. Jesus was pushed out of the family of God. Jesus was cut off from the Father so that you could be adopted in. We could be brought in by faith. Jesus was abandoned so we could be adopted. That's what this meal's about this morning. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. That's just not a throwaway term. You treated Jesus like a rebel. You treated Jesus like an illegitimate son. So you could treat us like loved sons and daughters. He was judged so we could be set free. He was pushed out so we could be adopted. Thank you for that. This is not an easy teaching. We love our families. We love our families dearly. Father, would you do the work in our minds and in our hearts to have an even greater love for you and for your eternal family that you've created through the precious blood of Jesus. This is something that the Spirit must do in us. Would you help us? In Christ's powerful name we pray. Amen.